Being referred to as the most influential American film director of the 20th century might be considered fighting words for those who are devotees of Orson Welles, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, or Terence Malick, especially considering that person spent most of their life in the UK and that most of their films didn't necessarily set box office records. Volumes of books have been written about his work as well as much scholarly research and study, all trying to divine his oeuvre, myth, and influence on movies. Even almost 20 years after his death, cinephiles are still rapidly interested and concerned with the films of Stanley Kubrick. The Dilettante, a Ferrochrome podcast. Born in the Bronx in 1928, Stanley Kubrick was the first child in an upper-middle-class family, by 1920s standards, to a physician father and homemaker mother. When he was 13, his father gave him a camera which ignited an interest in photography. While he was always interested in literature growing up, taking delight in mythology or Germanic children's stories, he was never a stellar student at school. His low grades and spotty attendance in high school, combined with the increased demand from returning war veterans for post-secondary education, edged him out of any chance of attending college. He instead, at age 18, became a staff photographer for Look magazine after submitting a photo series. He was also a burgeoning chess master, playing in Washington Square for change to supplement his meager income. One of his more notable photography assignments for Look magazine had him covering a match of middleweight boxer Walter Cartier in 1949. This would figure significantly a year later when, inspired by his repeat viewings of art films at venues like the Museum of Modern Art, he decided to direct and self-finance a documentary on Cartier. The crew was meager, comprised of his first wife, Tobo Metz, and two friends, with Kubrick handling everything else. The result was deemed surprisingly accomplished by one critic, and Kubrick was able to sell it to RKO Pictures to recoup his costs with a narrow profit of $100. He never looked back and quit his job at Look Magazine. He made two more documentaries using filming and editing techniques gleaned from Russian master Sergei Eisenstein. By 1953, he made his first feature film, Fear and Desire, with seed money from an uncle. Fear and Desire detailed a behind-enemy-lines tale of soldiers trapped in hostile territory after a forced crash landing in their aircraft. While years later, Kubrick would find this inaugural effort at directing a feature embarrassing, it shows techniques of framing and editing, as well as themes of how fragile the foundation of civilized mores are during war. It wasn't remotely a box office success, and he had to direct another documentary as a gun for hire to fund any further features. His breakthrough feature film was four years later with Paths of Glory in 1957. In a script co-developed by Stanley Kubrick and his producing partner, they were able to get the green light on the project once they had interested Kirk Douglas in playing the lead Colonel Dax. The story is of French soldiers accused of disobeying orders, with Douglas's Dax defending his men. 
It is this association with Kirk Douglas that will garner him the directing chair for Spartacus, the epic historical drama replacing the previous director who was fired by Kirk Douglas after a week. It's not a smooth production with Kubrick and Douglas locking horns with their differing approaches to the script. But there are technical innovations on set, with Kubrick's first use of the relatively new Super 70 Technorama format, which allowed for ultra-high-definition shots of the 8,000-person large battle scenes. There's a fortuitous personal milestone, where Stanley meets actress Christiane Suzanne Harlan, who he would later marry that year. While Kubrick and Douglas would never work again after the troubled shoot, the film was a major success, raising Stanley Kubrick's acumen in the process. It is after this that Kubrick decides to only direct self-originated projects from this point on. He decides to adapt Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita as a dark comedy and chooses to film it in England, which will allow total autonomy of script and shooting as well as significant tax breaks by using an entirely British crew. He also begins his collaboration with Peter Sellers, who plays the nemesis Claire Quilty to James Mason's Humbert Humbert, who both do battle for the eponymous Lolita. While Lolita was not a major commercial success, it allowed Kubrick to move on to what some might term the first film of his middle era, 1963's Dr. Strangelove, this is another black comedy, but much wider in scope regarding impending nuclear war. Using a large ensemble cast, Kubrick again employs the talents of Peter Sellers, who plays multiple roles in the film. Again filmed in the UK, it was a critical and box office success. Kubrick had used exhaustive research as well as iconic design by Bond film production designer Ken Adam. What comes next is arguably Kubrick's magnum opus, which takes an unprecedented five years to develop and shoot, 2001 A Space Odyssey. In collaboration with author Arthur C. Clarke, Stanley Kubrick crafts, in meticulous detail, an epic which spans the prehistoric beginnings of humanity to the future of space exploration through one of the most famous jump cuts in cinema history. It too was filmed in the UK, utilizing the facilities of MGM's Borumwood Studios for the five years. While a technical marvel on many levels, it also had multi-tiered thematic levels, which have spawned many interpretations in film and critical literature. Its depictions of the complexities of spaceflight still seem realistic today, the realism being even more notable by the pre-CGI practical effects of the mid-60s. One of the most notable of these being a large vertical rotating set, which allowed actors to run in a complete vertical circle as if they were on a centrifuge inside an interplanetary ship. Upon release in 1968, it garnered mixed critical reviews due to its uncharacteristic, for its time, slow pacing, minimal dialogue and obscure themes. The decades since, with further study, have firmly categorized it as a work of genius, although even today it can raise more questions on first viewing than answers. After such an extended time and financial commitment, Kubrick wanted his next film to be something he could make more cheaply and more quickly. He settled on adapting Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange, 
being inspired by the subject matter and the performance of actor Malcolm McDowell in the 1968 film If, who he deemed tailor-made for the role of punk droogie gang leader Alex DeLarge. Minimal futuristic architecture in London was used as on-location sets for this slightly-in-the-future drama of disaffected youth who spoke the Russian patois lingo NADSAT while engaging in senseless ultraviolence. In 1971, it might have been too effective in this regard, as some copycat crimes in England, based on the film, compelled Kubrick to withdraw it from UK distribution in 1973. While it was still released in North America, where it was received more favorably, with the American zeitgeist of more realistic violence in cinema, it would not be re-released in England until after Kubrick's death in 1999. Stanley Kubrick's next effort was adapting William Makepeace Thackeray's The Luck of Barry Lyndon, a sprawling 18th century tale of Irish rogue Barry Lyndon, played by Ryan O'Neill, was ambitious in its efforts to place the viewer in that time period. To this end, Kubrick used techniques such as Zeiss lenses developed by NASA so he could film by candlelight, allowing one to see what those from that period would have seen. His three hours plus running time didn't suit critics or audiences of the day, with it only earning back a fraction of its $30 million production cost. As he did after 2001 A Space Odyssey, he opted for a more populist film for his next project and chose Stephen King's The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. This was not a straightforward adaptation of the novel, which wasn't unusual practice for Kubrick, but majorly irked Stephen King, who very publicly criticized and disowned Kubrick's version. It opened in 1980 to slow but increasing box office, finally making a sizable profit. Like other Kubrick films, it seemed to get better with age, as later critical re-evaluations saw more subtlety and slow burn development in Kubrick's take on horror. Over 35 years later, it has garnered almost as fervent a cult as 2001 A Space Odyssey, with nearly as much critical analysis of its themes and cinematography. Kubrick would again examine the milieu of war, this time the Vietnam War, with Full Metal Jacket in 1987. Mostly set in Vietnam, it was filmed entirely in the UK, within 30 miles of Kubrick's home in rural Hertfordshire, using the soon-to-be-demolished ruins of a British gasworks complex. Numerous palm trees were trucked in and planted to suggest the bombed-out Vietnamese city of Hue. It had a notable performance by R. Lee Ermey as an abusive gunnery sergeant, despite the fact he had only been hired by Kubrick as a technical advisor. As can happen with movie releases, Full Metal Jacket was released at the same time as director Oliver Stone's Platoon, which overshadowed Kubrick's film critically and in box office. Predictably, Full Metal Jacket has been reappraised as well in recent decades, with Platoon not having aged as well. It is by this point that Stanley Kubrick decides to stay in England for good, giving that return to the U.S. would compromise his control over future projects and his artistic vision. Being in the U.K. away from Hollywood would start to mythologize Kubrick. By the early 1990s, Kubrick was rarely seen or photographed, 
which was probably an easier feat in pre-social media times, giving him a sort of J.D. Salinger-esque patina of the reclusive genius. Indeed, he would end up being impersonated by British con artist Alan Conway, who ran up various expenses under Kubrick's name without anyone questioning his identity. Conway was finally tracked down through the efforts of Kubrick's personal assistant Anthony Fruin, who would later write a screenplay about Conway's misadventures in the guise of Stanley Kubrick. This was ultimately made into the 2005 film Color Me Kubrick, starring John Malkovich as Alan Conway. Stanley Kubrick's final film was a 1999 adaptation of an obscure 1920s Austrian novel, Tromnovelle, which he retitled Eyes Wide Shut. He cast real-life husband and wife Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman as a married couple who navigate infidelity, secret societies, and finally come to an uncertain conclusion to their own uncertainties about marriage and sexuality. Again filmed in England, with Pinewood Studios subbing as New York and Greenwich Village, it was filmed with a high degree of secrecy. After a lengthy editing process, he showed a finished print to Principals Cruz and Kidman, which they approved. He would die six days later of a heart attack before it was officially released. It was released to very favorable box office and critical success. Stanley Kubrick always had many projects in the pipeline, such as an unrealized biopic of Napoleon and the android-themed AI, which was actually completed by friend and colleague Steven Spielberg. One suspects there always would have been unfinished works, even if Stanley Kubrick had died years later. And these works, if realized, also would have been appraised and reappraised by cinephiles for years after. The Dilettante, part of the Fairchrome Podcast Network.